Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and all, and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. We often don't recognize that the common elements of our modern society have ancient roots. To give you an example, we often deal with challenge and response credentials in our digital life. Many of you have to put in some credential uh, when you access your cell phone. Maybe it's a number, maybe it's your fingerprint, maybe it's your face, but you challenge the phone uh, for data and it doesn't give it up unless you type in or put in the right credential. You have this with email and websites and banking. And yet, uh, as we think of these things as modern events and modern parts of modern life, it differs little from the ancient challenge of who goes there when you try to enter a place that was secure. We also know that the level of credentialing increases as the value and importance of that which you're trying to access increases. After all, it takes you fewer credentials for you to walk into the grocery store than it does for you to walk onto an airplane or into Fort Knox. You might choose a rather simple password for your email, but a more complex one for your banking. And this is part of ancient times as well. When you wanted to go into the city of Jerusalem, that might be a less credential. If you wanted to go into the palace of Jerusalem, that might require a little bit more. And with these common ideas in mind, let us consider probably what would cause you, what credentials are necessary to access the most important, the most valuable thing ever. What credentials will it take to enter in to the presence of the Lord? What privilege will you need in order for you to behold the approach of the King? To answer these questions, we consider the psalm before us today. Now, we don't get much background of the Psalms. Ordinarily, each one is self-contained. The most we find in this Psalm appears in the preface. This is a Psalm attributed to David. Now, we might not think all that much helpful to be found in this title, but it does give us a temporal marker. It gives us a time period that this Psalm was written in. And David writes, prior to the construction of the temple. And thus, the, where we would expect temple imagery, we don't find it. The presence of the Lord in his holy temple doesn't show up here. Instead, David uses city and hill imagery. And this psalm is unique, is interesting, because the weight of the psalm 
its most important section appears in the center. Many psalms share this this unique uh, character. This psalm, the significance of this psalm derives from the reverence of the Lord, and the Lord's greatness is spoken of surrounding the central question at the heart of this psalm. And so in this psalm, let's see, let us see together the Lord's creation, the Lord's ascent, and the Lord's coming. The Lord's creation, the Lord's ascent, and the Lord's coming. David begins with a description of creation. It marks one of two elements that appears in the declaration of the Lord's glory, the other being redemption. Creation and redemption being the substance of how God de- demonstrates his glory in, his, in the world. And David reflects on the fullness and the foundation of creation. Now David expects the reader or hearer or singer to fill in with his imagination or sight what he merely summarizes here in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. In the Hebrew, the name the Lord appears first in this verse, out of order, to put the object of worship where he rightfully belongs, emphasizing his primacy. To the Lord, the earth, the Hebrew reads. David implies the right of creation in this language. The earth is the Lord. God possesses as rightful sovereign his creation, that which he made. David uses parallelism throughout this psalm. We see this in verse 1. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell in it. We see that parallelism between the language of earth and world. Both belong to the Lord. We see this because the Lord is put first to the, uh, the, uh, to the Lord, the earth, and the world. Both belong to the Lord. And we see with parallelism often a development in the second part of the parallelism. In the first part, we see the fullness being in. Uh, emphasized. And we see that progress from the fullness to those who dwell, the rational beings dwelling within the world that God created. Implicit in this development, we find the Lord reigning as sovereign over all humankind. Every person owes the Lord all that rational creatures owe to a gracious creator. And immediately we think of worship and obedience. So David continues in a way that may seem foreign to us in verse 2, for he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. We're okay with the first part. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell in them. And then in verse 2, we run into a problem. It seems that David has a unique three-tier cosmology, the heaven above, the earth, and the water under the earth. We should be familiar with this stratification, for it appears in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, in the second commandment. This division we would consider scientifically inaccurate, but remember, this is poetry. It doesn't deal in science, but in images and in metaphors. And to understand it, you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, which we really should expect, because this is talking about creation. 
You remember in Genesis chapter 1, the world is covered with water. In Genesis chapter 1, and the Spirit is hovering over the deeps. And it's only in day 3 of creation that dry land appears. The image also reminds us of the purpose of this dry ground. Here, when he talks about the land and the world he found, that he has founded upon the seas, established upon the floods, this dry land, that dry land that God created wasn't for the sun or the moon and the stars. The dry land that God created wasn't for the birds. Again, don't bring your science into the poetry or the sea creatures. And it really wasn't for the land animals either. It exists for the chief of the Lord's creation. It exists for man. The Bible in its description of creation and redemption describes them anthropologically with a man focus because that is the focal point of God's revelation. He explains to man why the universe was created, his position in it, how he messed it up, and how God is making it right. The Lord creates for man, and he redeems for man. Purity marvels at the power of the Lord in creation. When you look at the wonders of creation, we see the extravagant beauty in which the Lord has made all things. Man's artistic works looks either bland or gaudy by comparison. I was writing this when I was in the Atlanta airport and I was looking out the window and there were two things that caught my attention. One was uh, the concourse that was opposite where I was looking at and it was bland and drab and uh, yucky, muddy, brown color, brown gray, just nasty color. And it was contrasted against uh, Spirit Airlines, big yellow plane, and Southwest, blue, white uh, plane. And I thought, how, how gaudy or bland does man's work seem against the background of God's own creation? Now, granted, it was a rainy day, and it was dreary and cold in the you couldn't watch the planes take off all that much because they flew into the clouds and it was not a, the greatest day in the world. But when you think about the beauty of creation, what man creates, as, as wonderful as art can be, is only an attempt to replicate what the greatest artist has already done. It's as if the Lord alone knows how to balance and how to use color and shape and form. And as wondrous as creation is, the superlative truth is that God made this world for us and is redeeming the world for his people. He made it especially for his people, to those to whom he gives the power to appreciate and to enjoy it in Christ. We are the ones because of what Christ has done in us, because of the purity Christ has worked in us, that can go and look at God's creation and see it in wondrous colors beyond that which the unbeliever can see. But more, the sin-broken nature of this era of creation, as beautiful as it is, sin still has broken it. It is a creation that is groaning in travail until now, awaiting for the redemption of the sons. 
As we labor to perceive the beauty and the fallenness, the Lord will one day restore to wholeness that created order when Jesus returns. And for this reason, God's people choose choose purity. This is what the Apostle John recognizes in in 1 John when he writes, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, we are not this, we are the sons of God, and yet it doth not appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. John is saying we are pure people, but for the hope of the resurrection, for the hope of the return of Christ, we purify ourselves. Do you appreciate the grace of God in creation? Do you anticipate that day when the Lord will restore his great work? Do you purify yourself because of who you will be in the last day and what the Lord will work in you? To the pure, the Lord gives a heart to partake in the grace of creation. So we see the Lord's creation, but secondly, we see the Lord's ascent. In the heart of the psalm, David turns his attention to what it will take for man to approach the holy God, the Lord of creation. He discusses the qualification that the Lord requires and then includes a benediction, the blessing that will come to the generation that approaches the Lord. David begins with a critical question there in verse 3, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? To remember what this means, we must remember that uh, David has brought the ark, likely by this point, to Jerusalem. Even before Solomon has built the temple. And it seems likely to me that he would have put the ark and the tabernacle on the site where the temple would eventually sit. The temple hill is a hill overlooking the old city, the city of David. And it means that you would be required, if you wanted to go to where the tabernacle was, to leave the city, to walk up the hill, to where the ark was was seated. That seems to me to be the background of this place. And David's question is, who can go up that hill? Who can stand and have access into the presence of absolute holiness? Who can be there in the presence of God, whose very presence makes even the ground itself to be holy? And so David answers his own question in verse 4. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. The answer of who can go up the hill is in a word, the pure. One who approaches God must come cleansed. Here we see echoes of the laver and its function in the tabernacle. That bowl that sat near near the sanctuary of the temple, the place where the priests washed themselves before they entered into the holy place. But David knows that the external washing of hands merely presents the external picture of the internal need. The clean hands represent the pure heart that God requires for his worship. And so David continues with the actions that this character requires. Notably, David focus on speech ethics in his in verse four, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. The term vanity here runs parallels to the concept of oaths. 
one who has not lifted up his soul, that verb that is the exact same verb that appears in the third commandment. Thou shalt not bear up, bear, lift up the Lord's name in vain. He has not lifted up his soul to that which is false, nor sworn falsely. There's almost an internal and external factors here. The soul being given to self-deception leads to dishonesty. This is the character that leads to divine blessedness. Verse 5, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The appearance of this blessing sounds like God justly rewards those who please him. But considering the New Testament use of the term righteousness, we may rightly remember that this righteousness is that which the Lord both requires and gives to his people so that they may draw near unto him. We have no purity or righteousness of our own to offer unto the Lord. Therefore, he gives it to us in Jesus. David then exclaims with an eschatological hope in verse 6, This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. What generation is David speaking of? Is it David's day or is it one to come? David sees a generation of people who devote their lives to seeking for access to the Lord. David sees a people, he hopes that it's in his day that he sees a group of people, a generation, a a massive group of humanity from Israel seeking to purify themselves to have access to the Lord. But there is a sense in which David speaks of a generation to come. A generation of people seeking to gather themselves to the place where the Lord draws near to his people. The Lord requires purity in all who would approach him. But the Lord also provides the purity that he requires in his people. Through Jesus, those who were far away from all the blessedness of that place, he has brought up the hill into his presence. My friend, no one has purity by birth. We enter this world stained with sin and choose sin instead of purity. In your heart, you know that the corruption rests within. You know that you cannot approach a holy God. You fear that you can never make yourself clean enough to escape hell, and you are right. But what you could not do, God did for you. Jesus is God-made man who lived the pure life that we could never live. He died upon the cross to shed his blood that cleanses us better than any water that was put into the laver. He rose from the dead to prove that death and hell could not hold those who are united to Jesus by faith. Do you believe this? Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you repent of your sin and turn to Christ? You have seen the Lord's creation, the Lord's ascent, but finally the Lord's coming. David turns from the question of who can go up the hill to a vision of the Lord who will descend the hill. And his, he rejoices in that Lord's strength and his company. 
David uses a similar introduction in the two parallel expressions that conclude the psalm. Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted, lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. The King of glory approaches the city, and David says, let the doors fly open to meet him. The King of glory, spoiler alert, you've already read it, so I don't know why I say that, is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts who David talks about going up the hill to where he, exi- where he lives, where his, the place where he has chosen to put his name, where his ark resides. While the city here remains unnamed, we may safely infer from the author and from the setting that it refers to Jerusalem. That place where you had to leave the city and go up the hill to go into the tabernacle, now see David sees a day when that Lord will come down the hill into the city. In the scene, we imagine the Lord coming down to meet with his people. This is Sinai on steroids. Instead of the Lord descending to the top of Sinai and staying at the top of the mountain. Now the Lord is coming down the mountain into the city where his people live. We cannot but see this statement, this promise fulfilled in the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on that week when they crucified him. But we cannot also but see this as pointing forward to the greater day when Jesus will come again in glory to claim his own. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift up the everlasting, be lift up, O ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. The King is coming, the gates must part before him. But as the gates part, there's also an implicit statement, a call to his people to lift up their heads to view, to in anticipation of the king's glorious return. But David goes on to describe the glorious one who is coming and what it is that makes him glorious. Look at verse 8. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The king of glory is the Lord, the God who revealed the character of that name to Israel in the Exodus and on Sinai. Again, the emphasis is repeated twice, this emphasis that emphasizes the proof of presence that the Lord himself indeed is coming to dwell with his people. The Lord who promised to dwell with his people is coming even closer. And David continues by describing what makes the Lord glorious by describing the Lord's strength. The Lord is a better warrior than David is. And David does not use this description, I don't think, in an abstract way as we, we think, oh yeah, the, the Lord God is strong. We ought not to read this in the way that we would read about, a famous, about famous warriors in history or present military commanders. This is a real event. This is a real factor, a factor that has impact in our lives. For the Lord is a mighty warrior for his people. David reverses the assumption that he was the one who fulfilled the people's need for a king to fight their battles. David wrote this hymn, and when he talks about the Lord mighty, the Lord Lord who is strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, 
he is putting Israel back to the, that day when they went to Samuel and said, give us a king who will go and fight our battles. And the Lord told Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me as their king. They're putting their hopes in a mighty warrior, and he gave them Saul. He gave them what they thought they wanted. The one who was big, the one who had the sword. And if anything, David recognizes that his battle in the valley of Elah against Goliath proved that it was not David who was the mighty warrior, it was the Lord. The Lord, mighty in battle, battles his and our enemies. But the Lord is not alone. We read in verse 10, Who is the King of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the King of glory. We might not make much of this because we become so familiar with the phrase, the Lord of hosts, that we forget what it means. It means the Lord of armies. Now you might think, and rightly so, well, the Lord, being God, does not need armies. He overcomes all his enemies by his own mighty arm. He has no need of an army to attack his enemies. He, by a word, can eliminate them. Yet the hosts, the heavenly and earthly hosts, bear witness to the greatness and the might of the Lord. They provide proof and establishment that this is no lone warrior who is kind of a commando on his own. This is a war leader. This is a king who has his host of people at his side battling with him and for him. And David understands his role this way. He is not the mighty warrior. He is not the commando that Israel needs. He is one of the Lord's hosts who the Lord is pleased to demonstrate his victory through him. David is an agent of the Lord's victory, just as he went down into the valley of Elah and faced Goliath. He did not say, I, by the strength of my arm, are going to take you, Goliath, down. He said, I am here as a representative of the Lord of hosts, and the Lord of hosts is going to bring you down. In the New Testament, this vision of who we are as God's people remains, that we are a part of the army of the Lord. But the definition of the war has changed drastically. Paul reminds us, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Though our warfare has changed, the Lord is still mighty in battle. The Lord is still the Lord of hosts. We encounter enemies on many fronts. We face attack from the world, attempting to conform us to its worldview, to its methods, and to its power. We face attacks from Satan, tempting us to rebel against the Lord. We face attacks from our own flesh, the remnant corrupt gravity that pulls us back to our old habits and our old, old patterns of behavior. 
we face the struggle of proclaiming Christ to a lost and dying world. We find ourselves as God's people under assault. One of the most rejected, discriminated against, despised group of people. Under such assault, where do we look for victory? I would suggest to you that purity contains more power than all the world's armies. All the vaunted worldly powers cannot overcome the purity that the Lord gives to his people. Purity reminds us that the Lord is mighty in battle. Purity makes us a part of the hosts of the Lord. In Revelation, the vision of the heavenly army is that of his people clothed in white who come after the warlord, the warrior king, Jesus, only to spoil. We stand before him arrayed in pure white, and the assault on our purity occurs through our doubt in the power of the Lord. Where does your sin come from but when you begin to doubt that the Lord is mighty, and strong, the Lord is mighty in battle, that the Lord has the hosts of heaven and earth at his beck and call. Christian, let not the world, the flesh, or the devil convince you that God is losing. That thought opens the door to the plethora of every sin. Stand resolute in the knowledge that the Lord of hosts, he is the sovereign. King of glory. Let us pray together. Forgive our sin and wash us clean, O Lord, in the blood of your dear Son, that we may be used by you in the army you are pleased to call for yourself. Remove our doubt in your power. Give us a vision of the new creation you are making for us and fill us with wonder. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.